0: my prayer is for whoever is struggling right now with their life to decide whether they deserve to live again or to take their own life because god is amazing give your life another day another month another another year and it will truly truly change so um what i want to leave with this with the audience is that have faith have faith in, in in god have faith in your future have faith in and those that support you, the dreams truly really come true. They, do, they truly come true, especially if you decide to live, decide to give life another chance.
1: Welcome to Radical Abundance. I am your host, Teresa Jansen, and today's guest is Nia Jok Doluan. And I'm very excited about the new book that she has just written. I tell you, I fell in love with this book before I was even able to read it just looking at the cover and I'm so excited for you to get a chance to hear this story. Welcome to Radical Abundance. Thank you, Teresa. So just give our listeners a little bit of a background. I know you're from South Sudan, which is where I am right now. However, right now you're in Texas in the United States, which is where I'm from. So you and I have kind of swapped places geographically in the world, and that's a lot of fun. Give us a background. How did you end up in the U.S. briefly? Oh, so yes, I am currently in Texas.
0: Uh, Teresa. I grew up in a refugee camp. I grew up actually in two refugees camps, both in Ethiopia from the time I was three years old until I was 14 years old. And when I was 14, my family migrated to the US as refugees and we resettled in Omaha, Nebraska. So I grew up in Omaha in the States It's my home. Um, in 2009, I graduated nursing school, joined the army. So I've been traveling in and out. But now Texas is my home and um, it's where I've been. And I have three kids. I have a 20-year-old, a six-year-old, and a five-year-old. So that's that's a little bit about me.
1: Yeah, Joke, if I tell you, if I grew up in Nebraska, I would head to Texas also because Nebraska is cold. Now, I'm originally from Michigan and now I live in Juba and I am wired for Juba. I would totally head to Texas. Good move. <laughs>
0: Yes, I agree. I could not go back to Nebraska to live. No, too cold for me.
1: I don't know why. It seems like when they resettled refugees in the United States, so many of the South Sudanese refugees ended up in crazy cold climates. I don't know who made that decision.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny because I talked about that in my book. I have a chapter called Coming to America. And in that that chapter, there's a subsection that say migrating to the Midwest. And You'll be surprised. There's a lot of reasons why our family chose to go to the Midwest, and one of them is for economic reasons.
1: Well, mm-hmm. I am wired for South Sudan. I don't do very well in the cold, but I have to go back mm-hmm. to the U.S. sometimes, and my family's still in Michigan, so I, I do have to find a way to tolerate it somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned the book because that is what I really want to talk about today. And I, I have a, I bought the Kindle version because it's not oh. in South Sudan yet, uh, but it's coming. So I bought the Kindle version and I want people to see, I'm going to put a real image on the show page, but I fell in love with that cover right there. So first of all, the title of the book, I Am My Mother's Wildest Dream, that just captured my heart, captured my imagination, and I think really captures the essence of your story. Where did that title come from and what does it mean to you? Make me want to cry
0: it already because it's uh,
1: Me too, it's, I know. Yeah,
0: yeah, really it's the 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 story in the book is so much about my mother as well as it is about me. And um to think about how far I have come, I think about my mother and all that she went through to get us where we are and where I am right now. So definitely I am a dream come true for her. Um the title was put together by four different women. <laughs> So, my editor, Camille Thomas, my really good friend, uh, Rosie Thames, and one of our really, really good friends from a business partner, she actually designed the cover, and that's Christy Horton. So, we all came together after the book was done, and um, I have a lot of different, I had wrote down different possibilities of different titles. And I am yeah, my mother's Wallace dream was in there, but it was way longer. And so we all came together and shortened it together. So it was definitely a title that has a lot of thoughts into it based on what's in the book.
1: I just imagine that it resonates with so many mothers and daughters, you know, really across cultures, you know, because I have dreams that I didn't realize in my life that I watched my children realize some of those. And I'm so happy for that but coming from your context it takes on a whole different meaning and there's a part of um, the introduction that I just want to read just two sentences really it says here um, women's oppression is real my culture doesn't believe girls should be educated they are only to get married and have babies this belief has kept far too many of our women illiterate including my mother and I vowed it would not be me So what point, I know I'm jumping into the deep end here right away, but at what point did you make that vow? This is not going to be me. I'm going to have a different future.
0: I was 14 years old and I was getting married at the time in Omaha, Nebraska. And I I had that arranged marriage. And all I can think about is how, as soon as I move in with this guy, all I'm going to do is have babies and I'm not going to be able to go to school. So that's when my fight for education really
1: begins. You were still a child yourself and you're getting married here. And this is in the United States. People think that this doesn't happen, but it it did happen.
0: It truly does. There's um, the thing about immigrant communities here in the U.S. is they still practice things as they do back home. And the law doesn't know about it because none of these is legal. It just all Based on communities and families' decisions, like my arranged marriage was just between families. None of it was, the law didn't know what was going on.
1: Now, here in South Sudan, of course, girls get married even younger. In fact, oftentimes those marriages are arranged even when a child is born. The marriage could be arranged as young as that. Also, you talk in the book about what love means in a family, in the South Sudan context, and then you kind of shifted when you got to the United States. And that's hard for someone who comes from outside that context to understand. And I've been exposed enough to it to, to understand when someone here talks about um, my father loves me, my mother loves me, or doesn't, it's oftentimes referring to that ability to take care of physical needs, taking care of the physical needs. It's not about the hugs and the time and the studying the bedtime stories and things like that. It's about a roof over the head and food on the table and things like that. So tell me a little bit about how that transitioned for you, even understanding the concept of love. And what did that mean to you in this marriage relationship that you were entering into at such a young age?
0: You live in South Sudan and you definitely understand that love in our culture, it's not about what love is in American culture or the Western world. It's truly about being able to provide for your family, you know, food mainly, safety, security. And all of that, when I look back at what my parents did in the refugee camp, I truly know for sure that they loved us. They loved all of us. And even when I was in the refugee scam, I had already had few arranged marriages. And that was not a problem because that's what I knew. That was the culture I was subjected to. So I didn't have any reason to say no or to fight that. But when I came to the U.S., you know, of course, my family used to say, you're becoming Americanized or you want to be like people here. I was being accused that I no longer want the culture or that I'm forgetting the culture already because I was fighting the arranged marriage. Um, But it's just because... I learned something, you know, my mind was being opened up to to other possibilities, you know, such as having an education. So that's when my mind really shifted. about, I wanted my voice heard. It was more about my voice than anything. I felt like if my family had informed me and say, Hey, this guy want to marry you. What do you think? You know, are you okay with it? I felt like I would have been more receptive to what was going on than just saying that it's so.
1: Yeah. That idea of having a voice is really important for people and things are changing rapidly in South Sudan, but not everywhere and not as rapidly maybe as it could be, but we're watching these generational changes happen one to the next. Now, when you went to the United States, you went with your family, right? Your mom was there also or no. Everybody. Yeah, Yeah. she was. My mom, my dad, my siblings. Yep. How did that change the family dynamics and, and how does your mom feel about this book? I have to ask that question.
0: <laughs> I really, I, I really truly hope one day my mom will get a chance to, to talk about how she feel about me writing the book. Um, I can tell you what I think she feels when I first told her that I was writing a book she was very worried. My mom was very, very worried because once she knows that I, I speak, and if I was going to talk, I was going to say a lot of things. And she was worried about what I might have said about our father. You know, women in our society, they very protective of their own homes, mainly their husbands and their kids. And, you know, South Sudan is a very hush kind of community that we don't, we don't talk about our family's life to other people. So my mom was more concerned about What am I saying in the book about my father? So later on, when the book was written, and I was trying to tell her, you know, I'm not saying much about dad. This is what I said about dad. But when the book was finished, I gave the manuscripts to all my siblings, all my six siblings, they, um, they read the manuscripts. And it wasn't until my older brother called my mom and told her what I actually said about my father that my mom said, you can go ahead and publish it. Because she wow. felt she felt safe at that point. She, she knew that I'm not out there trying to destroy our family or try to ruin my dad reputation or things like that. So uh, she's very supportive right now. Very, very supportive and very proud. But I know she was scared. She was very scared at the beginning. <laughs>
1: And I can hear the love you have for your family. And it's just a matter of fact account of this is how things are. You call it unfiltered, I think is the word you use. You said, this is my story. It says, this is my unfiltered story in my voice and my own words. And no one can take that away from you or say that it's not true because it's your story. And um, I think you've tried to be respectful in and, and telling it, but it's your story.
0: It is. It is my story. And we all have our own stories.
1: That's right. What is it that you hope people will take away from the story?
0: I have two audiences that I really hope will get something from this story. One is the men in the community. The Sudanese men, the uncles, the brothers, the fathers, I truly hope that they will look at this book and they will read it and they will say, I will never subject my daughter, my niece, or my wife to this type of treatment. And I'm hoping they will choose to be better, to be a better man for their own women and their families. That's I truly hope that's what they will get from this. Instead of looking at my father or looking at my brother or looking at my, my ex-husband and and point fingers that's not what I want I don't want them to point fingers because all these men in my family that I talked about in the book are just they are product of our culture but I hope whoever reads it will decide to be better because I hope they don't want any of their loved ones any of the women and their family to go through what I went through and it is truly almost every woman in South Sudan we go through the same thing but it got to change for the future so that's one hope that i have for that category the second one is for the young women you know it's for the young women i want them to know that their dreams can can be realized it doesn't matter how difficult their situation is which is why i talked about my refugees camp to show them how far i have come and where i was at the time and where i am now and how god has just never really done with us you know our situation can change in a time and i want them to have that hope to know that their life will be better and it can get better.
1: I talk to people here all the time and they oftentimes feel like the only hope that they have of having a better life is to go somewhere else, like the US, Australia, Canada, you name it. They want to go somewhere else because they think that that's what it's going to take to be financially secure, politically secure, you know, not, not to live in danger and fear all the time. And you talk about fear. I want to get back to that in a little bit. But I know that you are a big advocate, not only for people's voices, for people to be heard, but also an advocate for people to take charge of their own future, and especially in the area of finances. What would you say to someone who says, "Well, that's a you know, joke. That's easier for you to say. You went to the United States. Of course, you're now successful and secure. But I'm stuck here. You know, that's not my life. What can I do?" The first thing is education. We truly have to
0: send our women to school and have a, some form of formal education. I tell you, I would not be able to do the things I do right now without education. And I've been fortunate and blessed, and I'm so grateful that my family came to the U S but just having education in Africa alone can set a woman so far ahead and could be, can give you that independency that you, you don't have to rely on somebody that's abusive to you or somebody that doesn't respect who you are. Cause you know, you'll be able to take care of yourself or your children. My first advocacy is for child education, girl child education. I'm going to talk to the young woman in Gambela because that's, that's where I'm from, and there's a lot of arranged marriages at a very young age. And if I could talk to these fathers, is to get their daughters to school. And if I can get through these young women and says, have your education be a priority, it could set them up so far. It could set them up for a way better. Future. It doesn't matter where they are, if Ethiopia or anywhere in in Africa. It's, It's the foundation for everything. It's education.
1: And there's a lot of movements going on in South Sudan trying to advocate for girl child education. But there's also a lot of barriers in the way, and it's a long road to really make that accessible for a lot of people. So I think doing the best you can with what's available there. But just as a family, committing to allowing your girl children to have the same opportunities that the boy children also have. One time I had a group of men. It wasn't designed to only be men. It just happened to all be men because of course it was some type of a group of leaders, you know, so a lot of men were there. And we were talking about this issue of um, marrying an educated woman or marrying a woman, they could say from the cattle camp or something like that. And we talked about what are the benefits to marrying an educated wife. And I put them in, you know, focus groups where they could just talk about it among themselves. And, you know, one man actually came and he said, you know, when um, our child is sick, I can trust my wife to take our child to the doctor, to understand what the doctor says, to get the right medicine, to give the right doses of medicine and to take care of our child. I don't have to take time off from work and do, you know, all those types of things. And everyone thought, wow, that's really great all because he married a woman who could at the very least read. And so literacy is a great starting point, but oftentimes I feel like we set the bar really low and say, okay, so if girls at least go to school until P8, you know, primary eight or something, then at least they have a basic education. And that's kind of the focus here right now is on primary education. But I've always said, how can you expect to run a country and have the future of a country with an entire country of people who are only educated through the eighth grade. You have to have people reaching for higher education. That's very difficult for young ladies. So tell me, what was your area of study when you went to school in th- in the U.S. Right? Yeah. So I, I'm always into science, and
0: my father knew from the very beginning that I love science because I'm always talking about what is the difference between a man and a woman. Why do they have these things and women don't have these things? Like it's always about anatomy. So when I went to college, I knew I was going to study biology. So I went to study biology and during my, at the end of my first year, I found myself with a nurse at school at, uh, at the hospital. And, um, I talked to her she told me what nursing was all about because I didn't know I mean there was no guidance from home my parents didn't have the education but um, I came back to school and I changed my major to nursing so study I still study biology I still you know do anatomy and physiology but my primary love um, subject is anatomy and physiology I'm all about body organs and all of it
1: Yeah. My youngest daughter is in premed. She's currently a medical assistant, but she loves the yeah. pre-med. And even as yeah. a medical assistant, she likes to do any procedure that they will let her yeah. do. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, so she's like, yeah, let me drain the abscess and do the, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she works for a provider yeah. who's like, yeah, you do the, the yucky stuff <laughs> and she's, she loves it. So uh, that's that's great. Yeah, that's an unusual thing for a girl to do maybe in South Sudan, a girl probably wouldn't have as many opportunities to be a nurse as um, as is in the United States. So when you're coming to South Sudan coming up here very soon in July, I'm very excited about the book launch. It's the 4th of July. Is it? Yes. Help me get the dates um, right because yeah. I want people to know <laughs> when to come.
0: So right now the book is scheduled for second July at the Pyramid Hotel. However, the the Center of Strategic and Policies that is launching the book just reached out to me and says they are expecting anywhere between 150 to 200 people, and they're going to have to move it from Pyramid to Juba University. So. Uh-huh. Right, they haven't given me the date, but now the location moved to uh, Juba University because now there's so much going on and, and everybody wants to come and there's a, they expecting
1: a lot of people to turn up, so it's going to wow. be at Juba, but I don't know yet what day. It's going to be the first week of July. All right. Well, we will keep an update going on that. I will actually update the show notes as soon as we have the definite location and time and day. It'll be in the show mm-hmm. notes to this here. And I'll be also sharing it on my social media. Because like I said, I am so excited about this. Now, I I just saw your book shared by a friend of mine on Facebook. And like I said, that cover was so striking to me and just inspired me. And, um, I, I said, I've got to meet this woman. And I reached out to you Mm -hmm. instead of usually people reach out to me and say, Hey, I want to be on your show. But in this time (laughs) case, I, I reached out to you and was so excited about this and really excited about the fact that you're coming to Juba because we don't get a lot of these really fabulous books. You know, people Go to the States, they write books, and they don't ever make it here. So I'm really curious as to what the impact is going to be, what the reception is going to be. Obviously, You have people looking forward to your arrival and to the launch because you've already outgrown the the swankiest, fanciest venue we have in South Sudan. Now you've had to go to the university, which has the capacity, but maybe not the same vibe as Pyramid Hotel. Got to love Pyramid Hotel, but uh, you have to go where we'll hold your crowd. Because if you have that many people already, I predict this is going to be big and I'm very excited about it. I am so
0: excited. I was when they said it was Pyramid Hotel because I have heard about Pyramid Hotel. Okay.
1: (laughs) I was Uh so excited. And then they said
0: Juba. I'm like, oh, Juba University. But you know, Pyramid Hotel cannot cannot accommodate all that people. So I'm excited about it. My dad is working something out. So he might come with me because I really I would love for him to be there. So he might be there too.
1: So we talked a little bit about your mom. Let's do talk about your dad, because you said that it was actually your dad planting that seed of education in you that he really valued education. And kudos to him. I really respect your dad. So what do you have to say about that?
0: My dad is pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so he's pretty cool he's very very quiet guy so a lot of things that I've learned I've learned them through my mother because my mom is more talkative than my dad but I remember in the Dima refugee camp I learned how to braid braiding my dad's hair you know like he would just sit down and I would I was seven eight years old and I would be braiding his hair and so um, and even right now when I need something like I want to know some about politics or about church he just have a really cool way of explaining things that always it just makes sense so um he's just a quiet person not as you know vocal as i am or my mother and it seemed like my voice or my mom voice it's it's in the forefront but um my dad and i are pretty close so <laughs>
1: That's great. Well, I, you're definitely, you're a product of both of your parents, but also obviously you are your own woman and there's a lot to be said for that. Now you talk about, um, a little bit about your faith journey. Tell me where has that really influenced you? I know the part that I read really talked about how it probably kept you alive in some ways through these difficult times.
0: Yeah, so as I was saying earlier, my name means Sunday. And I explain it in the book a little bit later when I talk about names and how important names mean. And I went through all my sibling names. So as you know, nya means it's a, it's a pronoun for girl. And then Jok, which is my full name, Nya Jok, it is a girl born on Sunday or Nya Sunday in English. Um, my dad was converted to Christianity as a young boy. He was young and I, we were all born in church. Uh, I grew up Presbyterian. And in 2000, my dad was ordained as a Baptist uh, pastor. So he'd been a pastor for a very long time now. He had opened some churches back in Ethiopia. You go back to Ethiopia all the time. So I've always knew about Christ and the Lord and that it's my savior. Um, but, you know, there's something about having your own conviction, you know, and, and being able to to say, Okay, now I know who the Lord is for me and not because my parent told me so or not because the church. Um, But the part you just alluded to, yes, I, I was very suicidal when I was 16 years old. And I almost wanted to take my own life. But... I I remember the teaching from my dad and from church that people that take their own lives can go to heaven. So, and I look forward to that, you know, so that was one reason that kept me alive. And I'm grateful it did. I'm really grateful that it did. Uh, But I truly had my own conviction as a Christian woman and a faith-based woman. And I didn't get that until 2012. And I was going through my own. Uh, adult issues. And I talked about that in the book too. And that's when I truly understand whose crisis for me and what my faith really means. So it's a journey.
1: Yeah, you can be born into a Christian family, but it has to become your faith because it's not your family's faith. It ha- it's a personal faith. Yes. So that's wonderful. Yes. Okay, this theme of fear, that also is, is another thing that kind of permeates your story and fear of survival, fear of the future, all of those types of things. How have you transitioned from that time, that life of fear, to this beautiful, confident, radiant woman that I see before me today? No, I still have fear, Teresa. <laughs> yeah, we I all do, do. But, but you don't let it rule you. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I think at some point, I got to the point in my life where I said, I have to live my life for me, not for my community, not for my mom and dad, not even for my children, I have to live my life for me. And, and that took a lot of Trials, a lot of tribulations, a lot of crying for me to figure that out. Um, I wish I didn't have to go through all of that to get to where I am now, but that's really what it did, really took. Um, and I always joke with my friends, I say 30s, which is I'm in my 30s, I said
1: 30s are the best year because I really don't care anymore what people think. <laughs> so hey, wait till oh, you please. get to 50, it gets even better. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. I truly can't wait because I, I realized.
0: In order for me to make the impact and live my purpose, I, ca- I can't have other people voice in my head. I cannot have them tell me, don't do this, do this. I have to truly follow my own voice. And that's when it came to be very crystal clear what I really want to do in my life and what my purpose is, is to drown out those people voice that tell me, you're a Sudanese woman. You're a newer woman. You don't act like that. You don't dress like that. You're not supposed to say things like that. And I had to shut all of that out.
1: Yeah, for sure. And be your own woman and be God's woman, the the person that God has designed you to be. The one thing that I know, I interview a lot of authors who have told hard stories on the show. And the one thing that I know is that we persevere, we survive, we overcome, we learn. And then when we learn to tell our story, it's a beacon of hope to someone else. Because there is a young girl today who is facing arranged marriage, there is a father today who is considering that for his daughter and a mother today who is deciding the future of her daughter. And your voice being spoken out loud today through this book, through the show, through the events that you're doing, is a beacon of hope to people to say yes we can love our culture we can embrace our culture but not every part of our culture is good there's a time and a place when we have to transform our culture keep the best and then move forward with something that's going to actually make our culture even more beautiful and i think that you are a beautiful example of what the culture can be. Of course, you're now a blend of cultures. But by coming back to South Sudan, you can also be um, an example of what a beautiful fe- future of hope can look like for the beautiful women and girls of South Sudan. I really appreciate that about you.
0: Teresa, I it, when I think about those women in South Sudan, especially the young girls that are going through this right now, I think about how we are as South Sudan. Right now, you know, the population in South Sudan is mostly women and it's youth. And I think I'm thinking how we are missing. we literally sitting on Michelle Obama. We're sitting on Oprah. We're sitting on women that could be powerful for this country. And we are not giving them the opportunity to flourish and, and, and get to that level to where they can really help the economy of the country. We are missing out. We are missing out. if by just not sending these kids to school to to have their voice and to be able to speak, and we're missing out. And I think about that all the time, how many of them could be anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It's the culture that's missing out in the gifts and talents and the wonderful things that these girls and women have to offer. And we definitely want them to be able to contribute to the world. And it's a world that is so open now and our voices can be heard far and wide. Well, I cannot believe that our time has come to an end already. (laughs) And um, before we go, first of all, I do want, I'll put the link to the book. It's a available now on Amazon. You can get the book. It'll be in the show notes. Um, I'll also put the schedule for the tour because it's not only South Sudan you're coming to, you're doing a whole East Africa tour and you've been touring the US also. And this show goes everywhere all over the world. So uh, you might have to add some more continents to your tour. We'll have to see how that goes. Um, But leave us with something. What do you want to just leave the Radical Abundance audience with today?
0: I'm really, truly grateful for the opportunity to be alive. You know, God truly saved my life. In 2018, 19, I truly didn't think I was going to see another day. Looking back now, I look like, wow, like, how did I survive that? There was a lot of prayer, a lot of fasting. And I just want somebody who might be going through that to know that. Just give it another day. You know, I was hospitalized for suicide ideation. And and this was 2019, not too long ago. And literally almost lost my life. So my prayer is for whoever is struggling right now with their life to decide whether they deserve to live again or to take their own life. God is amazing. Give your life another day, another month, another another year. And it will truly, truly change. So um, what I want to leave with the audience is that have faith. Have faith in, in in God. Have faith in your future. Have faith in in those that support you. The dreams truly really come true. They truly they truly come true. Um, especially if you decide to live, decide to give life another chance. So this this book it's it's a lot of resiliency, a lot of faith as well. Because I didn't do this all by myself. I did not. Um, but it's it's a hope. It's a hope that life can better.
1: Well, I am. So glad that God sustained your life and um, that you are here with us today. And I'm also, you know, if there is someone today who's thinking that life doesn't have a future for them, I'm also going to put some resources in the show notes um, for people who are thinking about maybe ending their life. So I want I never want that to be left unsaid there are resources there's hope but i think that the best resource that we've heard today is that no matter where you come from and the circumstances that you're in that there is a future beyond what today is uh, looking like yeah. no matter how bleak it yeah. is there is a f- hope and there is a future so thank you for sharing that message and ya i wish you a radically abundant day